Welcome to season two of Open Deeply, devoted to exploring the relationships society pushes into the shadows. Kinky love, non-monogamous love, neurodiverse love, and more. Jack Cornfield says to open deeply requires tremendous courage, a warrior spirit, and unconventional love takes just that. So, join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron and my co-host is Kate Lurie. Season two of Open Deeply is an exploration of love and connection in its many forms. This episode, episode 34, is devoted to living and loving when you or a partner is neurodiverse. Our guest is Anne Hodder Ship, and our conversation focuses on ADHD. Let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Anne Hodder Ship is an award-winning certified sex and relationship educator dedicated to providing accurate, expansive, and compassionate care. They're the founder and lead educator at Everyone Deserves Sex Ed, a sex ed and professional development organization. And they work with people and couples of almost any age to help build skills, knowledge, and confidence around identity, pleasure, relationships, and communication. Most recently, Anne wrote the groundbreaking Expansive Love Language ebook, Speaking from the Heart 18 Languages for Modern Love, and its accompanying guide, The Speaking from the Heart Workbook, a practical guide to modern love languages. She identifies as having ADHD and has been in a long term love relationship with her live in partner. But before we get started, I'm going to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy or a replacement for therapy. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call or text a friend, therapist, or the nationwide crisis line 988. Alrighty, so before we start to dive into our amazing interview with Anne, I wanted to talk to you, to everybody about kind of what it is to be neurodivergent. I think probably most of our listeners have a handle on it, but let's just zoom through it really quickly. So to be neurodivergent means that a person has mental or neurological functions that are different than the average person, the average neurotypical person. And just as a side note, the word was developed in 1990 by Judy Singer, a sociologist who is on the autism spectrum. And she came up the word to describe conditions like ADHD, autism spectrum, dyslexia, and so much more, right? So a simple definition of ADHD, I mean, we could go into like all the different symptoms of ADHD, but a little nutshell is that it's marked by an ongoing pattern of inattention or hyperactivity, impulsivity that interferes with, with function and development. And, you know, folks that have some of the inattentive struggles may lose track of where they're at, or they may have a hard time showing up to places on time. They may lose time sometimes. They sometimes have trouble completing tasks. Like these are a few things. Or if they're on the hyperactive side, Sometimes they can present almost like they have a motor running on the inside of them, you know, like just a very high strung and with hyperactive symptoms. And sometimes they need to squirm or fidget a little bit to the degree that I've seen in relationships, both in and out of my practice. A lot of people with ADHD, they'll, they'll tell me that it's frustrating because when they're having a conversation with their loved one, they want to listen to music or touch something or have something else go on. And their partner is like, why aren't you listening to me? I'm so frustrated that you're, you're just not even paying attention. And they're like, no, I can pay attention to you better this way. You know, there's all these little things where in relationships, there's these miscommunications and love relationships that I see both in my practice and off the clock, because let's face it, these days, so many people have ADHD that I feel like I'm talking about ADHD constantly. You know, in season two, we've been talking about how we want to talk about the types of love that don't get brought up as much. And so today we're talking about neurodiversity and specifically ADHD. So I thought we'd start off asking Anne, since Anne, you've, you've told me that you identify as having ADHD. And I'm just wondering, how does ADHD show up for you in particular? And maybe some thoughts about how it's impacted your relationship, either positively or negatively. Yeah, so I think... 
one thing that's important to also just to note right off the bat is I am one of those that got the diagnosis like really recently in the first year of COVID lockdowns. And I know that I'm not the only one. It was kind of an interesting time for a lot of people where they're like, hmm, this is weird. Or like, and now that, you know, we're sort of sitting still-ish, things were sort of coming to the surface. And I also think ADHD presents potentially differently for me, or at least unusually. Because even when I hear people describe it, I get, I'm great with imposter syndrome, but I get this little like, it's just not me though. Maybe it's not that. And so I'm always working with that too. The way that it really shows up the most is the sort of alternation between a hyperfixation where I kind of go into a tunnel of focus, which has always been celebrated as good work ethic and good student. That wasn't until around fifth grade, though. When I am in that place, like that's when I, you know, don't pee. I notice I have to pee, but if I do, I'll I'll break this place I'm in and I don't want to lose it. So then like hours go by and I'm also really thirsty. And then, you know, it's 2.30 and I haven't eaten since I had this little bowl of cereal at, you know, eight o'clock. And maybe I took, you know, all of my meds and vitamins, but like probably not. And then there are other times where if I'm really like hyper fixated on an idea or even like a story, I love to tell stories. And then I'm like in that I might talk quickly or I might have a lot of ideas or interjections. I speak almost like I have M dashes and parentheticals just flying all over the place. And to me, it makes total sense and it feels full. And maybe to the recipient, it's like, like, what the fuck? <laughs> there are definitely some people who've been like, who the fuck is this person? And then others who are like, oh my God, I love, love this person. And and then there are other times where, you know, I can, I can just definitely be easily distracted, but not in a way, interestingly, that makes me like not hear people or at least it hasn't felt like it's it's impacted me in the negative ways that are often described. Mm-hmm. Like I can be focused on a conversation with someone at a restaurant. And then if a song that I haven't heard in a while, that was like a really big part of my, you know, twenties or something comes on, I'll just take a beat to say, God, this song is so fucking good. And then go right back to it. And without really skipping a beat. And I think that that's just how it's always been for me. And I never really thought that it wasn't necessarily how it was for everybody else. And that maybe everyone else was just somehow like able to, I don't know, hold in all the things that you're noticing and maybe just not be as long-winded or not have as many details to share or whatever. So yeah, I mean, those are just some of the examples of how it's shown up and the fidgeting stuff, which is interesting. I find that it's like my fingers fidget a lot and the innocent bystanders in that are my poor cuticles where I'm just like picking at the fucking cuticles, which I actually realize I do. I do the exact motion that my mom used to do. And so now I have things like this where I can just kind of do this instead of just like shredding my fucking hands into pieces. Yeah. So again, like those are just the ways that it shows up and it doesn't always feel represented sometimes in ADHD conversations. And also some of the things, because I and you know, femme brought up as a girl, it was sort of just seen as like good behavior in certain ways and then like bad behavior in other ways. And no one ever really seemed to like bat an eye that something could be going on that could utilize some support outside of like punishment or some kind of reward. And the reward often was just the lack of the punishment. Yeah. And, and maybe we should just talk about that. You know, for a lot of folks have ADHD in their childhood, they it's not diagnosed and they're having all this fidgety behavior and and they're having trouble focusing in school and they're having trouble focusing on tasks. And so both teachers and, and their parents sometimes just think that they're bad kids. And so they end up getting punished a lot. And there's some people with ADHD even get to the point where they have trouble taking criticism as adults because they've just been criticized or even abused and seen as bad. It's interesting to think about how this shows up with different people. Like you were talking about like maybe how it shows up for you because, you know, I know you identify as they at this point, but you know, you're seen as a girl with those kind of norms as a child. And, you know, like if you look at autism spectrum, the way it shows up for those who are deemed girls is different than those that are deemed a boy. 
those symptoms tend to be stronger, whereas girls just are quieter and they don't have as extreme of symptoms. And so I, I wonder if this might be similar where it might go un, unrecognized, like it sometimes goes unrecognized with some girls that are on the autism spectrum. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know it's incredibly common for girls and women to maybe receive some kind of diagnosis way later in life. I wonder if it's just the fact that it presents differently or if the coping mechanisms are just more present or needed when you're a girl, because in order to survive and be allowed to exist, you have to figure out how to be quiet and small. And so you just figure out how to how to make that happen. Whereas I think that there's a little bit more just socially permission for boys and, and people who present masculine to just kind of like make the noise and take up space. They get punished too, but just like there's a social permission that I don't think exists for younger girls. And so we just kind of like figure out what to do and how to get by and then personalize all of the feedback as really all about like some sort of failing or a lack thereof. And it's without any real explanation either. I remember just getting a lot of pre-fourth grade. I don't necessarily think I was like disruptive, but I was certainly not like the astute, quiet, I don't know, scholar. I remember the thing that like got me into this kind of place where I'm at now, where I see how I turned out this way, was um, using fear, fear of a, of a major consequence. And that, I mean, it was very effective. It was very effective. And that's where I relearned how to kind of like exist in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean? Like self-imposed fear to get yourself to finish things? I wish it was self-imposed. Yeah. So I had an unusual elementary school experience where our elementary school in a small town had a fourth, fifth and sixth grade multi-age class. And so there were like a I don't know how many, you know, 10 fourth graders, 10 fifth graders, 10 sixth graders. And we were all in this very large room with a teacher who was considered like, I don't know, a little bit different or I don't know what the goal of this class was. Looking back, I think it was like the extras and the weirdos and maybe occasional special eds would go into this class. But the class itself was quite advanced in the sense that like our science class was kids aerospace something, something association. We were CASA instead of NASA. And we were, you know, I remember doing projects where like the fourth graders were in charge of agriculture on the, on our Mars colony that we were developing. And then someone else was at transportation and we would grow stuff. I remember had, having like little baby lobsters in tanks. And that was for some lesson and reading a lot of books and having to like draw pictures and little summaries, like the beginning, middle and end of the book. And then some traditional stuff like spelling tests. But the teacher used to call herself the dragon lady. And I just remember in fourth grade, jumping in there and seeing that the ultimate punishment for like being out of line, she was very strict as well. She just didn't like kids. It very was very obvious, or it is now. The um, main punishment was something she called the hot seat, where everybody would go to the carpet in the center. We would all have to sit in a circle and the bad kid would sit in the center and everybody got to say something to the kids sitting in the center about like their impact or their behavior or something, you know, negative. Like a public shaming. Wow. Basically. Yeah. And so I got, a, you know, my first couple of tastes of that, I was like, no more. I am incredibly hypersensitive. Let's be real. I'm hypersensitive to the world as well as just criticism, negativity directed toward me as well as other people. Like I feel all of all the things. So anyway, yeah, I got a couple of tastes of that. And I was like, mm, I am getting fucking A's. I am following all those, any fucking rule. I want praise, 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 or at least absence of shaming. And I remember, you know, on a spelling test, I was good at spelling, great with words. Got a, I don't know, hundred on the spelling test. And my reward was I got to sit wherever I wanted in the classroom. And there was a little loft space that had like, couches. And I think maybe the sixth graders were the ones who got to sit in the loft. And I remember being like, all right, I don't want to sit in the loft because everyone will know, like I chose that because it's my chance to go in the loft. And so I chose to sit on some weird fucking wicker, uggo yard sale chair in near a computer. And I was like, this is good for me. This is my reward chair. Cause I was just so hyper aware of like, or assuming that everybody is watching at all times. Mm -hmm. And so I have to 
be hypervigilant at all times with how am I sitting? What could I possibly look like? And what am I doing or not doing that could potentially then warrant some kind of negative reaction from teachers? Yeah. So yeah. And that, again, it worked and was super fucked up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which that's what they say a lot. I, I don't know if that was specific, if that was just your experience or if there was a little bit of the ADHD thrown in in that, you know, because they do say that folks with ADHD are very hypersensitive to criticism for various reasons. I am curious, you know, a lot of times when I talk to folks with ADHD that hyperfocus in the way that you describe, they'll tell me that if anyone interrupts their hyperfocus, that's almost like taking, you know, a deck of cards and just throwing the cards up in the air, like everything just becomes scattered and it's so hard to get back to the focus. And I'm wondering if you experienced something like that at all. Kind of like that. Yeah. I think that for me, it's almost like I'm pushed off of the tracks in order to get back on the tracks into that groove again. I have to like somehow pick up speed, you know, thinking of it like a train. I don't know. Somehow run myself, hope that I can get to the same speed I need you to get back onto that track. The odds are slim. It's not impossible, but I'll never quite get back into that groove. And it's not the end of the world, but it can impact me enough where if I don't have my door closed and someone can like walk by to say something, I'm already noticing they're walking by and nearby. I might get interrupted, which basically I've just interrupted myself. And the innocuous, potentially even like kind things that could be said to me, I can't hear them as kind because what has just happened to me feels incredibly unkind. Like I've just lost it or I can't focus on that. I'm I'm, I'm on this. I see you. Like I, like, I don't know how to be soft and sweet and kind. Like if I had a kid running around the house, that poor fucking kid, I don't know. Like I, it, which reminds me actually of my dad having a home office where it was just like, you just cannot interrupt because it may actually then disrupt the whole rest of the day. And when, you know, the work that you're doing where it has a deadline and that's the thing that gets you the money to pay the rent or the mortgage, like there's also that added pressure on it where like each day that goes by where it's not done is another fucking day. It's not done. And another day where it's on your mind and it's looming and it shouldn't have that kind of big impact, whatever the fuck that means. Right. But it does. And it sucks. It's how it's kind of always been. And now there's just a little bit more context around potentially why it lands in that way and isn't just like, oh, Anne is some cold, emotionless a-hole or whatever. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, just as we talk about love, I want to look at it potentially on three levels, like whether you feel loved by the culture, whether you feel loved in your community, whether you feel loved and seen by your partner, like on that multi-level uh, lens of what it is to be loved and how that influences the things that you feel are related to ADHD that are in you and cause you to be different. Yeah, I think that I've always felt different regardless and not in a negative way. The fortunate thing of having some of the maybe more detached style of upbringing is I didn't get a ton of scripting directly from caregivers. So I was kind of just like writing my own slash there was no script. There was a lot of cultural and social scripting that, of course, came in. But I just had that like, it's weird to call it a benefit, but like an added benefit of, of all the scripting I've had to kind of like undo or edit through. I didn't at least have like my parents and family scripting to go through first before the social macro type, you know, scripting. And I've just seen like the way that I would describe how it feels to feel loved, which is one of the reasons why the modern love language concept that I've been working with over the last couple of years just comes like it just is so logical and makes sense to me is that for me, like feeling loved is, I don't know, it's, it's something I don't necessarily need. But when I know that the people I'm around or the person I'm with, I have their permission to be as I am and that there isn't something in that moment that is like maybe a condition or not quite okay. It's like 100% permission at all times. And so that's how I show myself love is to really just practice as much permission as much as I possibly can. And then essentially having to work around trying to assure that there's consistent permission from people who are important to me and my partner, and then 
to not confuse criticism or frustration or a negative feeling as revoking of that permission. And then in turn, potential, you know, consequence or personal consequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to, you know, a lot of what you're saying, also diagnosed during the pandemic late in life. (laughs) uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of us. And a lot of what you're saying, of course, resonates. And there's a little bit there. I'm like, that's not me. But you know, our Venn diagrams overlap enough. And as I hear you talk about going through your childhood and sitting in that circle where everyone's criticizing you or not really knowing some of the like social scripts and then bringing that to love. And when you said, you know, to be accepted for who you are, it's like, yes, to not have, oh, why aren't you paying attention to me? You know, when I'm talking because you're looking at the thing or playing with your little bubble, whatever it is, you know, how have those specific things showed up for you? in your relationships, whether that's more of your current later in life relationships, or even some of your first relationships when you had those training wheels on and trying to mesh with like being close to neurotypical folks in a romantic way. What's interesting also is like, I didn't have what feels like a traditional type relationship experience from childhood either. Like I never really had any romantic or sexual relationships throughout school. And the first few were really related to or really like rooted in it's a kind of a weird way to describe it because like love wasn't the thing I was seeking necessarily or at least like romance but like earning their attention so I would have to do something in order to have the the positivity justified toward me the text back we had just started texting it was the horrible like you press the button four times to get the why right like we're old now, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, getting a reply to those like texts that took 20 minutes to send, it was effort, like at least reply to that. Yeah. Like asking me to come over and I was just sort of like, yeah, and and I will do the thing that I do in order to warrant additional attention. And usually that was like sucking penises. Can I say penises on this show? Yes. You um, can say all the words. You can say <laughs> yep, penis, you can call it whatever you want. Dick, you know, awesome. Um. <laughs> I figured. I figured. And so like formatively, there was, I got like real fucked up messaging around relationship, but not even because they weren't relationships, but like in the capital R sense. So it was like earning, doing something in order to be allowed to continue coming around because me on my own, however I was, clearly wasn't enough. I built this skill set, which is again very useful. I felt like I always had to have something to like bring to the table if uh, I wanted to be in like a certain friend group that for whatever reason I was like seeking their permission and approval, even though they're all like for the I would say 95% just garbage people. And I had fantastic friends already, but for whatever reason, it was like I also need that from these people. So I would learn how to tell stories and be funny and always have a story or something to share. So that was sort of like the social blowjob that I would first, you know, use. And then it was the actual blowjob. And I was like, I am very good at these clearly, because look at all these people who are interested, you know, in my mouth. And that felt like power. Then my first boyfriend that I had was, I want to say, leading into junior year of college. And I certainly like had played certain fields in college. It was the first time where it was sort of like a little bit less about figuring out who who would tolerate me and taking the best I could get kind of a vibe. And I don't know if he was neurotypical, to be honest. I think what was interesting in that relationship is there was such neutrality from him, I think with the rooted in conflict equals bad, you know, not wanting to recreate his parents' divorce kind of vibes that I could describe it as just all permission all the time, except it wasn't like, yes, I want you to do this. And I, I love you so much that I want no parameters that could hold you back. It was just like no noticing of anything. Like I was there, but like roommate style, not necessarily in the way that I think some people would like describe it. Like, you don't want to have sex with me anymore. We're like roommates. It was genuinely even just like day-to-day stuff. It was very neutral and plateau. And there weren't a lot of like ups and downs or any like real movement. It was just so one note and like monotone that also didn't 
work for me. And it was super fucking boring after a little while. And I didn't handle that relationship well. Cause I, as soon as I, that was at a time where I was also getting some sense of power and skill and talent and respect in the industry I was working in, which was like, oh, I didn't know this was my nourishment and my fuel. From that, I started to be able, I was like engaging with people who like really lit my brain up and were just as like funny and engaged in conversation as I was. And like, it was such a delight to talk to these people and the way that they would talk to me or like the things that they recognized about me that they enjoyed were all things I didn't think were even a thing to notice in the first place. And were things that like, yeah, you know, I'm actually, I think that's a special thing about me. Interesting. They also noticed that maybe that's actually a thing to feel like good about. And so I was like, yeah, I want to be around you guys all the time and not this, you know, fucker back home playing video games or whatever. So I had to eventually end that relationship and get my shit together in that sense. From there, yeah, I necessarily, just thinking about like, I don't think I've had a ton of like capital R relationships in part because I don't think for the most part, that kind of format of relations like works well for me. It can feel confining and it can feel like, I know this might actually come up, but the way that I experience quote unquote new relationship energy can result in almost like a, I don't know, a disconnection or a detachment after a while if the other person is not engaging me. I'm curious about that. More. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Can we actually put a pin on in that? Because I want to totally go into that. But I just want to do a, a wave over everything that you just said. So much too. I gave you so much to have to remember. <laughs> uh, well, just quickly, I just wanted to kind of connect some dots because it just sounded so similar. We had Bob Atunde on in the first season and he has ADHD and it just sounds very similar to his journey where his childhood, it was he was actually beaten severely for being like a quote unquote bad child when he actually had ADHD. And then he went through a phase kind of like you where he just really sought approval. And for him, since he's black, it became also a strange situation because a lot of times it was white people, you know, and, and people in the opera world and all of that. And so then he went through a phase of then finding his people and, and finding, you know, being a hip hopera star and like finding his tribe and loving being around other people with neurodiversity, with ADHD, who could just like be like two hummingbirds, you know, like talking. And that became the corrective experience. So through the lens of a therapist where we think about the trauma and then we think about how we in intuitively want to have a corrective experience, but sometimes we are originally drawn to people that are like the people that originally hurt us. So sometimes we end up re-traumatizing ourselves for a while. And then finally, if we keep on trying, we finally start to have the corrective experience. And that's what both your story and his story remind me of. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And then going to what you were speaking of right now. So I'm really curious about this part. It sounds like Sunny is as well when I've talked to and also read a lot of things regarding ADHD, you've probably heard like with narcissism, they'll talk about love bombing. And they'll sometimes say that folks with ADHD do something that looks like that, but it actually has a completely different intention behind it, where, you know, they just a lot of folks with ADHD love novelty. And so when they have a new relationship, it's like, NRE on crack, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's like new relationship energy just cranked way up. And they love it so much. But then when the relationship isn't novel, they can like drop off in a way that's even more severe than your average bear, leaving their partner feeling kind of blindsided by that. And it sounds like something a little bit different happens for you, but maybe there's a through line. I would say I could totally describe it like that. I think, you know, it's so interesting because even thinking about it, I don't necessarily have a ton of conversation. Like people are never really asking me about this kind of stuff, right? So it's this also is newer territory, even just to kind of think about like how to describe it verbally outside of the head container. But yeah, I mean, there's just such excitement and delight at a new person who lights me up. So in some ways, I want to be around them all the time, but not in necessarily a way that feels like obsessive or creepy, which is interesting, though, of course, like that's my perspective. Ask my spouse, did I creep you out? 
<laughs> he also got an ADHD diagnosis around the same time as mine, by the way. That's been an interesting side note journey. So it's just like, I'm delighted by the person. I think about them frequently, not in like an obsessive way, but if there's, you know, an opportunity to, I don't know, I see something that I know that they'll like, I'm going to get that while I'm out and I can't wait to give that to the person. And there's just, they take up a lot of space or I give them a lot of space because that's something that is just, I don't know, an expression of love for me and interest. And, and yeah, my, my brain is just lit up. It's not a a drop in the sense that like, oh, it's not exciting anymore. Therefore, I don't care. Or, it's, or like I'm bummed out or whatever, or bored. I think for me, it's kind of as soon as the person maybe shows a bit more of like reality, their real humanness, like when they're an asshole, the first time they're kind of like a, a dick to me or the first time maybe there's some kind of conflict where my experience of it is like, you are incredibly out of line and I, I'm, there's no compromise here. What the fuck is that? Then there's an element, like it's like a, a rain cloud or the, you know, someone kind of like put a gray filter on things. So it's not like it's gone, but it doesn't have vibrancy. I don't feel as lit up because it feels trepidatious and potentially a threat to my, you know, my well-being now because this person has shown that they can hurt or harm or make me feel some type of way, small, not allowed, you know, to be how I am, that kind of thing. And so the withdrawal and disconnect is the thing that I do the best. And it's not through choice. I think one thing, one way that this kind of withdrawal tends to be talked about, or the way that I hear it is like, it's some kind of intentional, like, oh, I'm going to punish you by withdrawing then. When in reality, it's like, if I had, I would love to have that much control over it because it's not an enjoyable place to be like withdrawn. And the place that I go is something very similar to a place I had to go when I was a, a kid. And I didn't make that connection until I was like 30. So that withdrawal, of course, can really land as love withdrawal and intentional and punishment. And that's absolutely how at least one person that you know I've been with has uh, received that. And I totally understand What's tough is when that person's narrative is you're doing this to me with some presumption of control, then it's like, well, there's nothing I can do then. If your story is that like I'm doing this to punish you, then like shoulder shrug emoji, like the more I would try to explain or defend, the worse it would get because it was almost like I was my desire to be sort of like understood or to have it be seen as what it really is and not what the story is as like lighter fuel when some people are just very convinced about what the truth is so like that would also help make things worse just intense need to explain so that they see it's not like i'm not bad or i'm not doing this on purpose or this might just be a part of me and you have chosen me therefore this might be a part of the deal if I can't help that person get there or like force them there through all the explanations and all the the wordy replies, it can feel really devastating. And like, what's this relationship seems over? Where do we go from here? So it sounds like in that moment, there may be many things happening. There may be a double trigger going on, meaning that both of you are getting oh, triggered. Probably. Quadruple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, like maybe your story of not wanting to be rejected, you might go kind of into a young place of not wanting to be rejected. And then they sound like they're telling themselves a story about what's going on in your mind that's not true. And they're feeling rejected and it's well in a certain sense. And then you're kind of spiraling. <laughs> I've noticed this is what happens in a lot of relations in, in pretty much all relationships. All relationship has that double trigger moment where they're both triggered and they kind of need some help getting through it. Oh yeah. I mean, I describe it like ping pong where it's, if I work with couples, like I, I just describe it as like our shit beautifully complements the other person's shit. It's the most inconvenient, awful, harmful, beautiful match. So it's like my shit, you know, sends the ball over to the other side of the table and then their shit beautifully serves it back in the most, you know, impressive, whatever. I don't know what ping pong terminology is, but like I receive it and I'm like, beautiful like just what an elegant ping pong match of just rotting shit garbage hurt feelings and fear the only thing you can do in those moments is try to realize like oh i don't have to actually swing back and maybe what could happen if i don't even pick up the paddle next time 
I see a thing being served my way. Like that's kind of the only thing I've been able to kind of like identify as a potential thing in con within control that could change an outcome and disrupt a pattern. Uh, visual analogies are also a way that I make sense of things too. So so this place, I'm pretty sure, you tell me if I'm wrong, Sunny, I feel like you and I have had conversations around this a bazillion times and where you go without a handle it and where I go without a handle it is completely different. Oh yeah. Ooh, tell me, tell me more. You'll always say it's because I have more of a neurodiverse brain where I go, it's always like, okay, well, both people need to learn how to ground themselves and to ground their partner. Because once you're grounded, then all these changes happen in the brain, like the frontal cortex that negotiates between reason and emotion all of a sudden starts working better when you're grounded, you know, like the compassion center of your brain starts working better when you're grounded. So in these moments where you have the double trigger, if you're grounded, you're much more likely to be able to you know, use your communication skills, whether it's Imago dialogue or nonviolent communication and work your way through. And then I'll talk to Sunny and she'll be like, well, actually, this is what I do. And it's completely different. Yeah, I know. Like we've had many conversations where it's like, typically it's like, you know, get your body grounded and your mind will follow. And I'm like, my body ain't doing shit. If my head has to, to lead, I have to do the logic first. And then I'm like top down, then I can ease into understanding what's going on and getting grounded and parsing everything out. And it's so opposite. So opposite. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's like everything is different. And I feel like preaching to the choir, but you know, living in a culture that chooses to keep the head and the body separate as other two separate entities and and then treating like mind body connection is the way to go when actually like it's already connected and everything is happening whether you know it or not. And meditation isn't going to be the thing that like suddenly makes everything, you know, good. It's like some people, yeah, it's a top down. And for others, it's the body first. And then the, the head can come. And there are times where, I don't know, I get the impression sometimes from people that there's like a right way. You need to be able to do that first, like do the body first and then it'll be okay. Or like, no, the head first and then the body will follow. And for me, it's just like very irritating. I don't know if I have a, a one way to do it, but I do know that my brain or like needing to have some kind of confirmation that things aren't starting to escalate in a, to a place or someone hasn't decided they're angry now in the middle of a conversation. I'm looking for all the visual, like the body cues more so than what they're verbally saying. And if I get that impression, my body is probably already a bit detached from that for a lot of reasons, but my mind has to get addressed or I have to get something from them in order for the mind to not go and avoid derailing the whole thing. And like, even now it's funny, like what day is it? It's like Friday, like almost 8 PM. And I'm noticing how like, this also doesn't feel like how I usually even talk. Like I'm, I feel like I'm, it's interesting to hear myself try to put this stuff into words and also hear what's actually coming out. I'm just finding it interesting. Like, I'm not judging it, but I'm like, hmm, this isn't how I sounded like three hours ago. You know, it's interesting, you know, listening to you, just talking about your self-discovery and, and how I know you outside of this. Like, I regard you as like a really confident person who knows who they are. And But also you're saying you got diagnosed ADHD very late in life. So then, you know, I wonder as you were going through life and as you were having different relationships and connecting with different people and sorting out what you want, was it difficult or was there even a, a loss of sense of self or identity of like, who am I as you're moving through these things? And how did that impact how you related to people or even once you learned how you changed and how that impacted your relationships? Ugh, yeah, I mean, I, we probably need like a whole other hour because I have so much more. <laughs> I have a lot of information about, I always treat it as information. Like I've just gathered information about myself as well as just like, thought, what's the word? Like I, I've been able to kind of like put what I know now onto things from the past and be like, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense to me. Or, oh, if only I had known, but like it was a, a rainy Thursday. And I remember waking up when I was a kid, I was the fat kid. And I say that I don't feel critical about it, but it was a very bad thing to be, especially then, because I did not make clothes in my size. So I had to wear adult men's clothes frequently. So I was kind of like fucking with gender accidentally 
from a very young age. I was also socialized very in a very masculine ways through my dad, not on purpose. But then also it's like going to a woman's store, get the permission that you're allowed to exist. Your form is okay for us. As long as it's a 14, maybe a 12 size, you know, those are the sizes that are okay. Like needing that sort of like weird social approval that isn't actually, it comes in the form of being able to like put a shirt on and button it and have it not like cut my circulation off. So identity wise, it was really just like, I was whatever I can do to try to like be, I don't know, like accepted as a woman to be allowed in this club this very exclusive club. And so there was that element. And so it wasn't about like, who am I really? It's really just about what, what is the right way to be and how can I get there? Then like my, with my first jobs, like I really enjoy creating things and I do give a shit about jobs. Even back when I was working for assholes and making them fuck loads of money and not making any myself. I really treated everything like it was my own, you know, like my own company or whatever. And so a big part of my identity, especially as I was working even more in the adult industry, was I'm the sex writer. I'm the person who works with sex toys. And I was very proud of that. And I loved like everyone else in my life was like this boring normie comparatively, right? Everybody in like, I found that like I was the one that had the stories or like maybe I'd, get, I'd be the one that would get invited to a party because I would people be like, oh, you're the one we heard, you know, works with sex toys or whatever. And I was like, I am. That makes me special. And like not in a negative way. It did make me special. It's fucking what a weird, interesting 20s that I had. Very cool and interesting and weird. So when around, you know, age 31, when a lot of my sex toy work that I did was starting to just feel like drudgery and very boring. And by that point, I, I had been running my own company for like six years or something like that. And it was an accidental company. Like it wasn't my fucking plan at all. I was just like, I don't know who am I if I'm not the one who knows what everyone is up to, who's who everyone tells their things to. So I was always knowing what's going on with this company or like what products are coming out here because they chose to tell me over dinner because they liked talking to me on outside of work. And I love talking to them, like that kind of power and specialness I had. Who am I if I'm not that particular kind of person anymore? And what else do I give that much of a fuck about? That was also around the time that, um, yeah, maybe a year later, I don't know. I was doing a lot of the sex ed stuff. I was teaching on behalf of Planned Parenthood around LA for free. It was in exchange for getting trained by them. And that hadn't quite like I gave a lot of a fuck, but I didn't actually see it as like a thing I could do as a job that could pay my rent. So I was like, what is the thing that I could pay my rent that will make me feel interested to get out of bed for? That was a whole you know journey in part of my 30s and even having to recognize like how much of my identity was just tied to things that I, I did work-wise or my business is just an, an extension of myself, not an opportunity economically. It's just like I had to make a business. So I did in order to be able to keep doing what I did. And then back to the whole like striving to be a woman or being allowed to be in the women's club, a very, I guess, naturally or whatever expectedly kind of had a, what I know now to be like an eating disorder and a exercise, compulsive exercise disorder. It was fantastic. And it worked. I could go into any store and fit into stuff. I could wear, you know, skirts from forever 21 that have like small, medium and large and not like regular human sizing. You know, I could wear a size large or maybe even a medium and it would like fit and like look right. I had finally, you know, made it and the reward I was getting socially for that slam dunk. It was really, really great. So around the time, you know, mid thirties, I was no longer in the disordered eating type of place. My relationship to exercise was dramatically different, but I was still very much thriving off of the, I'm still in the woman club and that's going to be, you know, capital W I'm going to like wear the pink jacket and the hat and all the things. And again, one of those things that just happened during lockdowns was after being sort of, you know, yanked out of the public eye and not having to interact with a lot of different people who I wanted to try to get respect from through my visual appearance, physical appearance, I just started to see like without that pressure or need, what was it like to just exist as me? And it was really just kind of nice to kind of for the first time, just like exist and exercise was kind of off the table. I mean, we had a serious lockdown. My spouse was a essential worker and it was very scary for the first 
well, it's always scary, but you know, very scary for like the first seven, eight months. So it was really like, I just lived in a little box all day and barely left the house. So anyway, all of that kind of then shifted around like this, the woman club actually kind of fucking sucks is something I more strived for more so than like emotionally connected to as like feeling as who I was. So, and that's just it's still journey is a weird word, but like, I'm still on that path, but there's no stop sign or end. So it like calling it a path feels weird. That's just where I live now is just interestingly in a whole new level of permission where it's like, I am so hyper aware of all of the rules and constructs and norms, partly because of my job, but also partly from just personal life that anything that feels like a confine or an expectation, I'm like, fuck that you know, not like cutting my nose off to spite my face. It's really just like, oh, yuck, no interest, no connection. That's made up. Someone else decided that was good and fuck that shit, which is so nice and freeing, but it can feel disorienting because there isn't like a place necessarily to then be socially. And now that there's a bit more of a, you know, leaving the house experience, not a whole lot of social stuff still happening for me, honestly, but I feel like I'm still like reorienting or reacclimating to being out in the world. And it's not always pleasant, but nicely, not because I think there's something wrong with me. It's just like, God, all of this is so fucking fucked up. It's so unappealing. But like, where do I go then? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that isn't just like spaces I literally make for myself. Well, you know, I regard both you and Sunny as visionaries. And, you know, when I, when I think, (laughs) when I, when I think about what a visionary is, usually what comes with that is creativity and thinking outside of the box and breaking things down and traveling, you know, the road less traveled and and all of that. And a lot of that may just be because the two of you are the way you are. But a lot of times I have heard ADHD linked up to creativity, not as much in the DSM because the DSM focuses on the negative and all of that, but just like out in the world, when I listen to people talk about ADHD, I often hear that link to creativity, visionary thought, out of the box thinking. And so I, I wonder if that resonates for you as, as maybe that's there's a link there. Totally. I mean, I still don't have a, a bait, like a real strong connection to even the idea of ADHD. Even the word diagnosis doesn't feel right because I just think it's how brains are plastic, right? It's how my brain developed as a result of the punitive stuff, the you don't belong here and we're going to make sure you have no way of expressing yourself because your body isn't isn't okay. Like all these forms of what felt to me like different kinds of punishment, literal and then social punishment that like the way I figured out how to maneuver it, my brain was like, all right, let's make this like lump over here and two wrinkles over here and let's connect these dots here. Cool. Like my brain is just like, was just figuring it out. And as a result, I think if my body organs like people, I them into people to understand them. But so yeah, my brain's just like, all right, whatever, let's do it. And the sort of end result by the time I went into college was an incredibly like useful, interesting, to me, powerful brain. But powerful brains, by powerful, I don't necessarily mean like superior. It meant my brain had so much power and ability and control over things that also my body could stop working at times or certain things could like very quickly shut down and there's no amount of like massage or meditation to like get them back into gear. Or it could mean that like the way I experience the world can maybe be through a filter that isn't necessarily the most fun, pleasant filter. I don't know what it would be like, but I'm guessing I wouldn't want any other kind of brain because this brain helped me completely wing a PR and marketing company for the sex toy industry. The very first one that specialized in that, it was what, like 24? Fucking, still don't know what I'm fucking doing, but like winged that to the point where it's still in business, totally successful somehow. And now I have like two other businesses that I run, not because I want to be this entrepreneur, but because in order to do this cool thing, I had to make it an LLC, okay? Or I had to turn this into a DBA from the S Corp. Okay, as long as you tell me what to do and how to do it and maybe do it for me, great. And the things I can kind of create on a dime, I don't know. It's so powerful and useful. And I spend a lot of, I don't even know how to describe it. That doesn't feel like diagnostic and negative. Like there's all that still social stuff, but like, I'm not like the most joyful person these days. Mm -hmm. And what used to bring me joy, honestly, what came with an air of, or a 
condition of being dis slightly disconnected from emotion or slightly disconnected from the full reality. And now because of the work that I do almost exclusively in sex ed, a lot of it is actually like being so aware, this is the analogy, like the emperor wearing no clothes. I've known that the emperor has been fucking naked for so long that part of my job now is helping ease other people into seeing that the emperor has never worn any fucking clothes this whole entire time. And that can be very rewarding and it's important. And I feel like a social obligation to it because I, I have the skills. So I better fucking use that and living life, a life in a culture that is mostly emperors who say they're wearing lovely outfits. I spend most of the time just seeing a bunch of naked fucks mm -hmm. who are lying to us and then seeing everyone else, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid through no fault of their own because it's the, the emperors have successfully done it. So like, yeah, I spent a lot of time just being like, God, this, what a fucking shit show all of this is or how awful, how unfair, how un inhumane. That's not a, the most fun place to spend my time. Yeah, so I'd like to pipe in and back up a little bit. Also go back to what you're saying right now, but I wanted to just back up. And when you were describing like breaking down kind of gender norms for yourself and breaking down what people might say about your brain and deciding how your brain works and talking to your body parts as, as people, like all of this, just like breaking down what culture says you're supposed to do and completely doing it your way sounds like self-love. If I completely wrap it back to kind of like what we're talking about, you know, we've talked about the culture, but, you know, I also want to talk about, you know, I mean, you just did, you talked about that whole bit. You're basically talking about self-love. It sounded to me. And so I just wanted to maybe mention that to somebody who might not have noticed that. And you might want to just rewind the podcast and listen to that part, because that was all about self-love, in my opinion. And the, the part where you get so upset about what's going on in our culture is so much about what's going on in our culture has nothing to do with love. And I think at the end of the day, everything that you try and put into the world is about love. We're almost at the end here. I would like to wrap back to your relationship and just, it's interesting because usually I'm talking to somebody where one person has say a diagnosis with ADHD and the other person doesn't. The person who doesn't is getting frustrated because this person's late and this person with ADHD doesn't feel like their partner has compassion. And there's like this whole thing going on. Right. But in your household, you got two people with neurodiversity. So I'm guessing in some ways you probably really sync up in this lovely way. And maybe in some ways it's harder. I don't know. I Yeah, I think it presents differently for us, which is like really annoying. <laughs> Let's be real. Like, come on. Like, for example, I used to spend a lot of time feeling always in a rush, always sort of everything was to the wire. Like if I had to get ready for an event and the event was at eight, I like would somehow just push it until 715 to like get in the shower and wash my fucking hair and do the whole thing. And so I was always like running late. And for him, that was the worst thing ever. For him, the, the lateness was not a thing. One of the first I don't know if it was like a really a fight, but one of the first things that for me was like, what the fuck is your deal was how he reacted when I said, I'll be there around six. And he was like, then at six is when you'll be here. And when I wasn't there at six, it was as though I had personally insulted his mother, you know, it was like a really big thing for him. There is a bit of like lack of focus. Like if we're watching TV together, I love having people tell me stories. So TV, I fucking love. It has to be a smart, intelligent show. I can't figure out from the beginning though, which, you know, it's smart and intelligent, actually. That's bullshit. Those are bullshit words too. It's a, something clever enough where my brain can't ruin it for myself. Let's, that's what it is. And for him, it's like, he's has to also always be on his phone. He has to be able to also look at something else at the same time. Like the show itself isn't necessarily enough to like keep his attention and maintain it. And I don't necessarily take it personal. Like I know what it is, but for me, it doesn't feel like a shared experience or an engaged experience because there's a third wheel and it's the phone. And there's definitely had to like work for myself to kind of just like be okay with the third member of the activity and find a way to still feel some kind of engagement or accept that this isn't going to be an experience that is going to feel engaged and like find a different one. I can adapt that way. But like he also is able to make things and he's creative in a very different way. And so I guess there's like a, a nice compliment where some of the ways I'm able to kind of like 
figure something out or I've already figured it out before. So now that he's trying to figure it out, it's like, oh, a way I'll show you love is like, here's how I did it or here's how to do it because I don't want you to do what I had to. For him, that doesn't necessarily land as loving. It can land as like, I don't know, um, insulting or like imposing or like a reflection of maybe his lack of skill or lack of ability. And so that's been something definitely to work around. And there's, you know, there's just other things that like, interestingly, I can't even necessarily easily like identify and name, but they're definitely there. Like having diagnoses, so to speak, doesn't necessarily make things it definitely didn't make anything worse. No one felt shame. It was sort of like, oh, okay, cool. That makes sense. Can I have some pills to make this easier? But it also has given maybe some context around certain needs where if there's a need for something like a need to have, you know, a phone to also like scroll through and look at occasionally, that's like an actual need and a part of the deal, not a habit to break that, you know, that needs to be worked on. So a lot of reframing of behaviors so that there can be maybe more of a feeling of that that kind of like love or permission so that they can just exist in more places in the relationship in ways that I don't think are conventional probably and easy, maybe easy to identify if someone was to like analyze it or write a book about it. And in closing, I'd, I'd like to actually ask both of you, how do you feel our culture can love people with neurodiversity better? Ooh, you want to go first? I have thoughts. I'm getting them together. What do you think, Anne? Let's see. I mean, in some ways, I want to get rid of the idea of neurodiversity and neurotypical altogether. I want there to just be like people and brains and have there not be like no standard to kind of like compare anything to in part because it gives a lot of people, I think most like quote unquote normal people would feel shame by having, you know, some diagnoses that gives the impression that there's a deficit, that because they don't compare to this totally arbitrary norm, that there's something about them that is not okay. For me, I was like, cool, you know, and I'm obviously not quote unquote normal in any way, but like, imagine if there could just be, yeah, be no scale of measurement and no idea of like typicalness anyway. Cause I, I would imagine everybody is a little neurodivergent in some way. And so people are like, everyone's ADHD now. We're overprescribing. And it's like, maybe, hmm, could you, you know, make space for the potential thought that it's not actually about you either have ADHD or you don't. It's just like, oh, interesting. We're now that pe- more people are talking about it and there's more space to exist as you are, there's more diagnoses because we're just seeing maybe that's more part of the deal of being a human being, especially now. And what can we reframe or erase and delete from the fucking DSM? Yeah. We're like mind melding because you're helping me verbalize. What I was thinking is that, you know, for people to realize that there isn't one way, if you have somebody who's neurodivergent in your life and they're, you know, looking at the phone or doing something like telling you how they did the shortcut to the thing, it doesn't mean, oh, it's all about me and it's because they think I don't know what I'm doing. Open your mind to the fact there may be another way or the story or the narrative that you're telling yourself as to why somebody is doing something may not be what it is. And, you know, to your point, even taking that further, give that grace to everybody, because I will hear, you know, in the talking about the autistic community, like, oh, people who are autistic, they can't read body language very well. And neurotypical people are so good at it. Have you seen them? No, they're not. No, they're not. (laughs) I think, you know, to just look at all of us as individuals, and there is no one big neurotypical playbook like we think there is. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we we need to wrap up. But I was just wondering if you've been so gracious to come on and talk about this when I know you've got, you know, two businesses and all these other things. But I do want people to know about your businesses and why I said you're a visionary. To me, you know, just your business, the division that's about everybody deserves sex ed is so important in terms of breaking down sexual shame because sexual shame that's been instilled by a lot of the right wing, et cetera, again, is all about breaking down love. And when you help to break down sexual shame, you're helping people love themselves and love the world better. You know, and so I, I want people to know what you're putting out into the world. So you can you tell us all about that? 
Yeah, totally. Everyone deserves sex ed is the company, uh, one of the companies that's like all about offering either sex ed, actual sex ed services to like teens and adults. But I also am now I'm also like teaching the teachers. My thought is like, let's just train everybody, anybody who has a job where you talk to other people in some kind of way, including like parenting or caregiving in a household. Let's equip you to be your own sex educator so that we can like just infiltrate everywhere. To me, it's like I almost selfishly do this work because that's the thing that gives makes me feel like I'll give it a, you know, a couple more days. Like this feels like a real a real purpose and I can see the payoff almost immediately. It's the ultimate expression of love. Like I show anybody, including a perfect stranger in the comments of fucking TikTok, that is an expression of love when there is, you know, some kind of affirmation and like engagement where I'm providing an inf information or answering a question. I love people too much to ignore or withhold, or I don't know, like not want them to know what's actually true to be potentially the first person who isn't lying to them about these kinds of topics. So yeah, everyone deserves sex ed is like the professional training and then personal sex ed. And I do work with a lot of teenagers too. Thank goodness. Cause that really, really gets me going. I really like that. I mean, it's kind of related to Etsy, but I also do relationship coaching, sex coaching. That's really coaching through belief systems and stories and scripting. And I also, uh, again, kind of an accidentally have an ebook and a workbook about reframing the idea of a love language as a modern love language and removing the romance from it, desexualizing and de-romanticizing love and making it more of like, what does love mean to you? Because even the word love is very subjective. So like, what's the point of using it as though it's this one very easily defined thing? I mean, another expression of love where it's just like, okay, interestingly, like we're lonely, we do want to connect and we live in a culture that is actually actively trying to maintain division because community means we'll thrive without having to rely on all these for-profit places who are ultimately, you know, benefiting from the individualism, profiting from it. So thinking of like, you could show love to someone that you don't know their name and maybe you interact for three minutes, but like, what about that interaction isn't loving? How do you feel when you're having that interaction? Is that a familiar feeling? Have, do you feel that with family? Do you feel that with people that you say that you actively love? Could there also be love there with that stranger? I don't know, but probably. I'm not going to tell you and I'm not going to show you, but I'm going to like give you some tools so that you can maybe try to connect those dots yourself and see how love is way more available when we don't think of it as romance and sex and marriage and the whole, you know, nine yards. So yeah, that's something I've been doing a lot more of lately, like just working with people on this idea of like, what is love if you are completely free of all of those rules and definitions and confines that you've been kind of like told or imposed on or forced into since like you were in utero. That sounds like it could be incredibly healing and expansive and lovely to just break it down and look at it fresh in that way. And, and where are some places that people can go to hire you or to find out about your companies, all of that good stuff? Yeah, uh, my personal website is anhottership.com and that links to Everyone Deserves Sex Ed, but also everyonedeservesexed.com is where you can get some of that information. And then the modernlovelanguages.com is the hub for all of that modern love language sort of like reframe. Mm -hmm. And that's ship with two Ps. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for coming on. This has been a wonderful episode. And I love how you're just kind of breaking down how we can look at these things from the get-go, even talking about breaking down this concept of neurodiversity and just looking at us as humans even that feels like love, right? Mm -hmm. I just want to thank you for all of these new thoughts that are beyond what a, a lot of people have probably considered. Again, you're just going to continue to be a, a visionary that, that shifts thinking. You know, another thing is I would say to anyone listening is, is try and follow Anne on Instagram and social media. For a lot of people that are sex educators, any of us are sex therapists, we get, you know, things happen. We get shadow banned or suppressed. And so one way that you can support sex positivity and breaking down sexual shame and all that is to follow sex educators such as Anne. 
So thank you so much for coming on. And we will hope that our listeners join again, where we will continue to open deeply. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.